This is Unstable Molecules, Explorations in the Origins of the Marvel Universe. I'm G. Hollingsby and this time we start with a bang. Post-War America was absorbed by the power of the atomic bomb. Primal, incredible destructive energies drawn from strange invisible radioactivity beyond comprehension played on people's deepest fears and insecurities. 1954 was a year in which America carried out H-bomb testing at Bikini Atoll with bombs 600 times the strength of the one dropped on Hiroshima. Over in the Soviet Union, the world's first nuclear power station used for supplying electricity to a power grid was activated in Obninsk, close to Moscow. As we see later on, the Marvel Universe starts in this atomic age, and the first wave of heroes, the Fantastic Four, Hulk, Spider-Man, were all created by exposure to some form of radioactivity, whether cosmic rays, gamma bombs or radioactive spiders. 1954 was a year in which Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. Color TVs went on sale in in the US costing $1,000, which was about four months' average salary. The US Supreme Court had ruled racial segregation of children in schools as unconstitutional. Bill Haley recorded Rock Around the Clock. And it was the year of Dial M for Murder, On the Waterfront, A Star is Born, Rear Window, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and White Christmas at the Movies. It's also the year in which Ishiro Honda's first Godzilla movie was released in Japan. But more on that next time. At the end of 1953... From 1954 cover date, Atlas Comics, the company known as Timely in the 1940s and owned by Martin Goodman, revived three of the most popular superheroes, Captain America, Namor the Submariner and the Human Torch. In the space of less than two years, 23 issues containing nearly 40 different stories were published. The last of these, the Human Torch, led the revival in Young Men comic number 24, This time, Jim Hammond, the original android Human Torch, was back after being upgraded by an atomic explosion. More of this later. But for now it's worth recognising the comic reflects a number of anxieties of the period. Communism, atomic war, Korea, brainwashing, organised crime. Even psychiatry plays a part in the first Torch story. These characters had appeared in the 1940s in their own titles and in Marvel Mystery Comics until 1949 when readers' interests had moved away from costumed heroes to things like westerns, romance and monster books. Though it was a different hero entirely that's likely to have triggered the Atlas hero's actual revival. than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, And who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. 
In his introduction to Marvel Masterworks Atlas Heroes Era Volume 1, Roy Thomas, long-term writer and editor at Marvel in the 60s and 70s, argues that Martin Goodman, owner of the Atlas Comics, had Stan Lee play up the Human Torch because Torch had real superpowers. He could fly like Superman and throw fire. At the time, it was likely this revival wasn't anything special among the 50 or so titles Atlas put out every month. None of these creators involved at the time could remember working on them, according to Thomas. It's also likely that the Human Torch wasn't Goodman's real interest. It was actually Namor the Submariner. As we'll see later on, the Submariner almost gets his own television series to rival Superman. You're listening to Unstable Molecules, exploring the origins of the Marvel Comics universe. And in this episode, we're taking a look at the revival of the timely heroes, Captain America, Namor the Submariner, and the original Human Torch. They appear in Marvel Masterworks Atlas Era Heroes Volume 1, which reprints the first five issues of Young Men magazine that appeared between December 1953 and June 1954. The stories of the revival have a limited range of interests. First of all, there's communism, and the Reds, the Soviets, the Chinese, become the primary antagonists in the comics. There's also space aliens and invasion, and again this is the threat of the other, which are either the Reds or other nationalities. And in in this comic, the depictions of non-whites is appalling, particularly so in an issue where Cap and Bucky go to China. We also see the threat of organised criminals in America. There's also scientists, evil scientists, who build strange technologies. And again, these villain scientists tend to have foreign names, like Markov, Scarlatti, a.k.a. the Vulture, Stanoff, the infamous red scientist. We see atomic energy and weapons used. And to a lesser extent, the women they meet are duplicitous. And there are recurring situations where the Torch finds himself imprisoned and has to escape, usually from something like chemicals or radiation. Another thing that Roy Thomas, former editor at Marvel, points out in the introduction to the Marvel Masterworks volume is that for the first time these stories attempted a continuity with their earlier issues by trying to explain where the heroes have been for the last four years. There's also a moment in issue 26 when Torch, Cap and Namor briefly assemble. It's like an anticipation of the formation of the Avengers in the next decade and there's something really disappointing about not seeing the heroes team up. It's a really missed opportunity. The Human Torch, evil's greatest enemy, is back. But where was he all these years, and what brought him back? Here is the full story behind the mystery of the Human Torch's long absence. It's the Human Torch! It can't be! We buried him in the desert four years ago! So you did, ratty racketeer, but I'm back to pick up where I left off. Fighting you and your corrupt crime. Get him, boys! Put out his flame again! Spray him with a dose of Solution XR. That's the opening page from Young Men issue 24, which reintroduces the timely heroes. And Marvel have collected this revival in a series of three masterwork editions. Volume 1 collects the short-lived Marvel Boy comics, 
reboot of the 1940s character, plus five issues of Young Men comic, which featured stories with Torch, Cap and Namor. Volume 2 collects the remaining two issues of Men's Adventures. Timely and Atlas comics constantly changed their names in the Golden Age, plus three issues of Captain America and three issues of The Human Torch, which were published. Namor's comic, The Submariner, gets the whole of Volume 3, ten issues. The Human Torch gets backup stories in all the Cap and Namor comics. The return of the Tommy Heroes was handled by some classic creators, Russ Heath and Carl Burgos on Torch, John Romita Sr. on Cap and Bill Everett returning to Submariner. It's not entirely clear who scripted the Young Men comics, though Stanley is generally considered the most likely writer. Young Men issue 24, cover date December 1953, tells us The Human Torch Returns, and I love how The Human Torch has dramatic burning typography. We see him dynamically tossing fireballs at a building, flames pouring from its sides. Torch himself is depicted beautifully in a red-orange burst. There's crowds in the street calling panic. A man shouts at a nearby woman in red, Look, he's back from the dead, it's the Human Torch! The night sky is utterly black above the city streets, which makes the scene seem even more dramatic, terrifying even, expressionistic. Beneath this are a couple of boxes showing the return of Cap and Bucky and Namor the Submariner. This return of the torch is action-packed. There are gangsters, unmarked graves, Korea, Soviet spies from behind the Iron Curtain, atomic tests, brainwashing, there's even a criminal called The Butcher to defeat, all packed into nine pages. The artwork by Carl Burgos and Russ Heath is striking. Roy Thomas calls it uniformly good, if not downright superb. And what's noticeable is that the android aspect of the torch is glossed over and is played up as being more human than his first run in the 1940s. Inside, evil's greatest enemy, the Human Torch starts the issue in a battle with mobsters. Torch calls them Ratty Racketeers. He's flown through the wall and punched one of them in the jaw. The crime boss, that seems to be his name, and his gangsters seem to be standing around counting money and are pretty shocked. They've encountered the Torch before and can't understand how he's returned from being buried in the desert. The gangsters have something called Solution XR, a chemical they used on him before to put out his flames. Even though they thought they'd seen the last of him, they'd thoughtfully kept a canister of the stuff at hand. The second page gives a quick recap of Torch's powers as he fights the goons in the room. He can throw fireballs, turn flaming on and off, shoot flames from his fingers, and he punches damn hard. Later in the story we hear that he's impervious to bullets as well. Torch gets covered in XR and it does put out his flames, revealing him to look like a thin blonde guy. Though through strength of will, he concentrates and flames up. He's become immune to the solution and beats up the remaining gangsters. Sirens scream through the streets of New City. And through is spelt T-H-R-U. The police arrive and thank Torch. And this gives Torch three pages to recount where he's been since 1949. First of all, we get a recap of the origin of the Torch. Born in a test tube that actually seems to be formed out of the flames of a large pot. The scientist, Phineas Horton, who is actually named here, shouts out, The flame is alive! It's a human torch! 
and tells the android that he must use his powers to fight the evil in this world. Let the human torch be the torch of liberty. In the next panels, we see Torch burning Hitler to death, fighting Nazi spirings, and, in post-war, battling gangsters. After that, there's an account of teaming up with Toro, who's a circus boy performing fire-eating. And incredibly, Torch reveals Toro has powers and shows him how to become a mini-human Torch. The police chief then recalls how Toro and Torch had taken on the Murder Inc. gang by melting through their battleship and capturing the criminals inside. Finally, we get a flashback to 1949 where Torch and Toro confront the crime boss who uses Solution XR, which paralyzes them. They take Torch to the middle of the Nevada desert, three-hour plane journey, where he's buried in an unmarked grave. Torch explains he wasn't dead, just smoldering, and then after several years, an atomic test explosion above ground does doses him with radiation and gives him the energy to burn his way out of the ground. In fact, the atomic blast had increased his power. Now my entire body is radioactivated, Torch tells us. Torch then turns on the crime boss, who reveals he was working with Soviets from behind the Iron Curtain, and had exchanged Toro for the XR solution. Luckily, the police chief is quick enough to link this with the reports of mysterious streaks of fire which have been seen over Korea. Torch flies straight across the world to track down his friend Toro. When he arrives in Korea, American soldiers tell him that something has been burning their ammo dumps, coincidentally at the time Torch is there, and Toro turns up. He's been brainwashed into becoming a communist, a sort of prototype winter soldier. The doctor tells Torch that Toro has been hypnotised to believe that America is his enemy. Barely has Torch the time to deal with his shocking news when the police chief arrives to tell Torch that his daughter Mary has been kidnapped by the Butcher, a member of the crime syndicate. They are willing to exchange her for the Torch. The deal on the table is that the Torch will fly to a place called Knob Hill and place himself inside a steel casket which is what he actually does. And then an hour later, a helicopter transports the casket to the ocean and drops it in. The crime syndicate hope this will trap the torch longer than the grave they dug in the Nevada desert. Fortuitously, in the last few hours, Toro had undergone electroshock therapy. And amazingly, this has enabled him to snap out of his brainwashing, thus showing the wonders of 50 psychiatry. Toro frees the torch and together they fly to a beach cabin where Mary, the police chief's daughter, is held. Once they see the two torches, the gangsters make a run for it in their helicopter. And sadly, we don't get to see the butcher in a one-to-one with the torch. And what's surprising is that the torch here is pretty ruthless. As the gangsters flee in their helicopter, he lobs fireballs and it causes the helicopter to explode, presumably killing them. The final panel has Torch and Toro embracing. Toro insists he's well and cured, though I'd be really suspicious if I were the Torch. And Torch declares that the duo are back on the job again. The Captain America story, which which follows, is less interesting. John Romita's art is pretty good, showing a sort of milk can of Terry and the Pirates influence. And supposedly at the time he was attempting to amalgamate the styles of Jack Kirby and Caniff. But the reboot of Cap is pretty unsatisfactory. 
Cap is now retired and he's a pipe smoking professor and he teaches at the Lee School. When the Red Skull holds UN delegates hostage, Cap and Bucky go back into action. And it's all very slight. Why the Red Skull does this is is pretty superficial. He's teamed up with the Reds as part of a crime wave. There's a brief recap where we find out how Rogers was turned into Cap by Professor Rubinstein, which is told to his disbelieving teenage class. And Bucky, who's still a young teen, despite the years fighting in the war, as a playground scrap. And then after hearing about the Red Skull on the car radio, Cap and Bucky spring into action. There's a really great panel where Cap and Bucky are running across the tops of cars while crowds look on cheering. The Red Skull gets the shield right in the jaw. <clears throat> Seems to be his response. And the story ends with Cap's class being all, gosh, we were so wrong about not believing in Cap. And Professor Rogers smokes a pipe. Issue 24 ends with a quirky submariner story where he investigates a series of cargo freighter sinkings. Now this isn't the Namor that we know today. He's a gentleman adventurer of the type popular in movies of the day. He's lost little wings on his ankles, but he still has that awkward triangular head and those arching eyebrows. Betty Dean, who is his sidekick, described as an attractive blonde ex-cop, decides that it's time to get Namor involved and we get a bit of a recap. And she tells us, He was a queer one, but I sure liked him. He was the prince of a tribe of man-like mammals who lived deep in the Antarctic Ocean, under the ice fields that cover the South Pole. His mother was a goddess of the tribe who married the captain of an expeditionary ship exploring the polar regions. And Betty Dean recounts how Namor's mother sent him to conduct a war against America. Now he actually became recruited in the war effort against the Nazis. There's this fantastic panel of him riding a torpedo at a German sub before getting suited up as a law enforcement officer post-war. After a phone call to Admiral Saybook, Namor turns up a few days later. Namor, you old sea dog, says Betty when she sees him. And it's all a little 30s detective movie. Betty and Namor get parachuted into um, an island where they find the inhabitants have all been murdered. Namor finds robots plundering the sunken container ships and gets Betty to call in the Navy, who refuse, thinking she's a crackpot, despite the one being the ones who obviously dropped her and Namor off. The Submariner allows himself to become captured by the robots and taken to their leader, and it becomes a classic alien invasion. These robots are from Venus and have worked out that the humans can't breathe in space or underwater, so they're weak and ripe for conquering. Namor ends up trapping the robots while calling out, Anyone else for tennis? The robot leader then decides they're no match for Namor, and they surrender, and there's a big explosion. Back home, even with the remains of the robot, no one believes Betty and Namor's story, and after searching the island and nearby reef, the Navy find nothing. The final panel, with Namor and Betty in fashionable matching stripy costumes, ends with a cinematic, well... We know the truth, don't we? Agreement with the reader. Now, the three stories, Submariners has the most pleasing artwork by creator Bill Everett. Two months later, Young Men issue 25 hit the newsstands. Now transformed into a monthly. Again, there are three stories. The Torch story, the return of the human torch, has the classic torch design with lines inside his flaming body. 
and interestingly, torches drawn without the lines, which make him seem less hot. This is a mystery tale about how old men have their youth restored, and the villain is a Dr. Markov who uses a flawed age converter, which means that after 50 days, the people um, who've recaptured their youth crumble to dust. Top Secret is a Captain America story by John Romita. The opening splash panel is a startling image of an atomic mushroom cloud with a superimposed hand pointing a gun at the reader. Cap's job is to ensure that the secrets of an atomic cannon are not stolen by foreign agents. The two foreign agents, Arnold and Lupa Lupov, are terrified of failing as they'll be dealt with by the evil executioner, who only reveals his identity at the moment before he kills his victims. When the scientist holding the secrets of the atomic cannon is seduced by Looper and taken out to Frenchman's Flats, an atomic test area of the desert, desert where he's tied to a cactus, Cap goes on the chase. He's presumed dead after being blown up by a gang of communist chauffeurs. So Bucky carries on, turns up in the desert and ineptly gets captured and also tied to a cactus. So it falls to Cap who didn't die to save the day. On the last page, Looper herself turns out to be the executioner and she shoots her husband for failure before turning the gun on herself. Cap explains that he wasn't actually killed by a dynamite blast because it was absorbed by his shield. Although, if you turn back two pages, you get to see that his shield is at his side and the blast actually hits Cap from behind. And it ends with an unintentionally hilarious final panel where Cap and Bucky watch a nuke go off, and Cap says, A glorious sight when it's on our side in the struggle for world peace. After that, the Submariner's Tale is incredibly disturbing. It's an adventure involving alien were-sharks. Namor and Betty read about a series of unexplained suicides, and Namor thinks it's a bit fishy, and decides to investigate. Namor in the, sto- in the story wears a surprising range of tightly fitting fashionable outfits which make him incredibly look incredibly dashing. There's a lot of creepy elements to the story. There's a horrible panel of people having their legs bitten off by sharks. There's a creepy old man who wanders the beach and ends up transforming himself into a shark. Namor rips his, the shark's jaw off and the next day the man's found with his jaw ripped completely apart. And one of the more intense panels shows a were-shark impaling herself on a sharp rock after revealing that she was part of an alien invasion. And on the last page, there's this mass roundup and slaughter of the were-sharks. At the end, Namor sends Betty a beautifully handwritten note explaining what really happened as the final panel. Young Men 26 has an unnamed torch story in which he fights a villain called the Vulture, who's the czar of an international criminal organisation intent on world rule. Torch and Toro have been out hunting down missing criminals, and at the same time plans for a powerful atomic bomb have been stolen. So the two head off to Alaska to investigate uranium mines, but are attacked by planes wearing the symbol of the Vulture's claw, the New York criminals, we find out, are working, or the, the, the missing New York criminals, we find out, are working in Alaskan mines, and they're selling uranium to the Vulture. And the Vulture's plan is to send planes carrying A-bombs to every major city of the world and hold them to ransom. 
He even has these sort of life-size model decoys of Torch and Toro, LMDs of Torch and Toro, that he wants to use to discredit the heroes. Again, Mary, the police chief's daughter, gets kidnapped to lure Torch to Mexico. And the trap involves deadly radiation, which affects Toro, but Torch's exposure to radiation when he was buried in the desert enables him to use the energy to escape. The radioactivity doesn't seem to have any long effects on Toro or Betty. And the LMDs are dealt with and the Vulture, who's really called Dr. Scarlotti, as he's base blown up, though he escapes. And then the final panel is a giant mushroom cloud of the Vulture's base blowing up. This time, sort of mushroom clouds seem to be very happy endings. In Captain America turns traitor, Cap is tricked into making a lecture about the Red Menace at Oakland University when he's injected by the virus of evil, which turns him into a communist sympathiser. He makes a lecture in which he extols the freedoms of Russia and then goes off to Alaska to wreck army fortifications and meet foreign agent Oronov aboard a sub. Eventually Cap's deals with all the villains and reveals that the super soldier serum made him immune to such trash as the virus of evil. And at the start of the issue, there's a moment when Torch and Namor make a brief appearance, suggesting a team-up, but it just doesn't happen. In the Submariner story, we see Namor and Betty Dean in a plane crash, and they're captured, yes, again by aliens, but this time wearing odd medieval outfits, who are led by a character called Oleg, who is going to hold the plane's passengers hostage until America gives up atomic weapons. Namor escapes and with the aid of the US Army defeats the aliens, who then turn out not to be aliens but in fact communist agents. And then in a final panel, in a Sherlock Holmes moment, Namor reveals how he'd in fact deduced the truth about the aliens early on. The cover of Young Men issue 27 has a creepy situation in which Torch tries to save a falling Toro while surrounded by ghoulish green heads. The splash panel opening page repeats the cover image, and then a caption box says, Who is the hypnotist? Overlord of crime throughout the world? What is the master plan he has conceived that will go into effect on February the 1st? Is it the job of the human Torch and Toro to find out and to crush the plan? But... Can they overcome the powers of the criminal's are, the power of hypnotism, the black and evil arts of ancient Egypt, and the dead face? At the start of the story, Torch and Toro save two women who are hypnotised and can only talk about the dead face. When they try to question two goons, the goons suddenly drop dead. The police chief and his daughter, Mary, are both plagued by the dead face as well as other government officials. And Police Chief Wilson gives Torch a name, Corey Doon, who's connected with a villain called The Hypnotist. At Doon's mansion, Torch and Toro are attacked by lions before discovering ancient artefacts, including a sarcophagus of Balaam, the evil high priest of an evil cult. And that, and the, the sarcophagus has Corey Doon's face. Typically, Torch is trapped in a room with closing walls and then the hypnotic dead face. But quickly escapes and follows Dune around the world where Dune addresses gatherings of criminals who would turn out to be thugs in India, leopard men in 
Africa, and mafia in Italy. All nice racial stereotypes. Doon's message is for the criminals to rise up and smash the governments. They chase Doon back to his mansion where they corner him. And he reveals that, yes indeed, he is the hypnotist. Plus, he's an immortal vampire who requires fresh blood to survive. And at the end, his face turns into a green, rotting, dead face and he crumbles into dust. Cap deals with the return of the Red Skull, which begins in the middle of a fight between Red Skull and his hypnotised men. Cap and Bucky wait for months, answering call after call for help, and they're waiting for Red Skull to return. And then finally they're called to a desolate spot called Oxbridge Road, where they meet an old man who shows them his home. Inside it's full of torture equipment, and the old man reveals himself to be, yes, it's the Red Skull. He torches Cap and Bucky to find the location of an atomic bomb plant. Cap agrees to show the Red Skull the location, but encourages the lorry that they're in to speed and crash. At the last second, Bucky and Cap jump free, but the Red Skull is killed, and they leave him laying in the road. The Namor story has a strange and slightly comic half-splash that shows a sunken galleon being defended by pirates from modern divers. The story opens with Submariner applying for a job in an aqua show. He gets the post and finds himself surrounded by beautiful women and his cousin, Namora. She's been investigating the producer. What the show's really trying to do is retrieve gold from a sunken galleon. And when Namor and Namora explore the galleon, they discover the ghosts of the crew under the command of a jolly spectre called Captain Derelict, who've been disrupting the efforts to raise the ship. Namor finally encounters Mr. Big, the villain behind the show, who turns out to be Comrade Ivansky, a Soviet criminal. The gold gets washed away, the ghosts disappear, and it has a happy ending. And it's this issue that announces that all the heroes are going to spin off into their own titles, but not for long. The final issue of Young Men, issue 28 with a June 1954 cover date, makes a change on the cover from having the Human Torch returns to a simple Human Torch in. The cover is pretty striking, almost like an EC or an underground comic of a much later underground comic of the 60s or early 70s the torch has a, a very aggressive raised fist and he's, he liquefies a machine gun in the foreground while Toro decks a bearded villain at the right hand side of the cover is a profile of a shocked open mouthed villain with bulging eyes and particularly striking the veins sort of almost popping on, on this, this villain's eyeballs inside the torch story has him facing the return of the vulture it starts mid-battle where Torch and Toro are fighting saboteurs. They're too late, the army didn't want to call them in unnecessarily, and a moonship, a classic 50s design rocket, is set on fire. Chief Wilson is there, and he's caught one of the saboteurs, a, 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 an engineer called Frank Ducas, um, and also his daughter Betty, for some inexplicable reason, has, has come with him. For another inexplicable reason, Chief Wilson begins ripping at Frank's clothes and he finds a tattoo of the vulture's head on Frank's arm. 
At that point, the rocket explodes. But luckily, there's another moonship in New England, and the army, along with Chief Wilson, Torch and Toro, fly there. Now, during the, the journey, the army official explains that the Americans are trying to get to the moon so they can set up an observation post and be able to bomb foreign powers from the moon that become warlike. And what they're really worried about is that other powers could get to the moon first, set up bases, and be able to bomb the United States. Betty has stowed away and is discovered in the plane. And then you've probably guessed that um, at some point in the story she's going to be held hostage by the vulture. And indeed she is. The army show off their second moonship and offer to show Torch the original blueprints for some reason. Torch sees them and realises that blueprints have pinholes where they've been photographed on microfilm. And then he notices that one of the engineers, like like at the other base, has a vulture tattoo and then threatens to burn him alive unless he gives up the vulture's plans. The engineer quickly confesses and reveals that the vulture already has a moonship built in Canada and intends to be the first to get to the moon and set up a base and hold the world to ransom. Torch and Toro set off straight away to Canada. They manage to sabotage the vulture's moonship, but at the last minute the vulture escapes, soaking the flaming duo with a liquid that coats them and causes them to lose their flames and fall out of the sky. But, luckily, the friction of the fall, it's all physics here, the friction of the fall dries out the liquid and Torch and Toro flame on. They fly back to the army's base where their second moonship has unexpectedly returned from space and the crew have returned in a terrible state whose souls, we are told, seem to have shriveled in the black, cold void of outer space. At this point, the vulture appears, he grabs Betty, as I predicted, as a hostage and he takes her aboard the moonship along with his goons. They take off, they're pursued by Torch and Toro who manage to board the craft and then they take care of all the villains. Then, quite suddenly in the last three panels, the guardians of space speak to Torch and tell him that humans are not yet ready for space until they learn humility and forsake war. Torch agrees. And then a final panel as the silhouetted Torch telling the army that space is close to them. And also in a thought bubble, Toro wonders how long they will manage to hold the vulture. The Cargo of Death, the cap story in, in this issue, opens with a frankly racist splash of Cap and Bucky fighting dope smugglers from Red China. The, the artwork here is, is, from a modern point of view, pretty embarrassing. Cap and Bucky are knocked unconscious by a falling crate and wake up on a freighter at sea. They're mistaken as stowaways by the first mate who wants to lock them up. But the captain, an old and feeble man on his last voyage, disagrees and allows Cap to stay on board. Cap finds out that the freighter is carrying a million dollars worth of dope to fund South African revolt as part of a world communist revolution. And when they arrive in the South African port, there's a fight and Cap deals with the first mate. Cap and Bucky go with the captain, who turns out not to be feeble anymore, and they arrive at a village where they're attacked by the captain's men. He was the villain all along. The first mate turns up, the captain gets shot, and there's a big fight. At the end, Cap reveals to Bucky that he and the first mate were working together all along, and the cargo of death turns out to be the dope they were smuggling. It's a much better title than the story deserved. Namor's story... The Land Below the Sun likewise has a great title, but doesn't follow it through with a solid story. 
Bill Everett's art, however, in this issue is, in my opinion, some of his best for this run of the Submariner. A ship of Russians is on their way to the South Pole to claim the, the, the continent for communism. It happens that they arrive above the undersea city of the Emperor, and Namor sees them just before he returns home. As he enters the gates of the city, he's laughed at by the guard and meets another relative, his cousin Dorma. She tells him that the Emperor feels that, N- that Namor has turned traitor by helping out surface dwellers. Namor meets the Emperor and tries to explain to him th- you know, what's really happened, but the Emperor refuses to listen and banishes the Submariner. Dorma sees him off, and as she's about to say goodbye, they witness the Russians exploding ice with, with ex- explosives to make sh- secure anchorage for their ship. Namor decides to sabotage the ship and gets Dorma to dress up as a ghostly woman in white to distract the crew while he sneaks aboard and smashes up their scientific equipment. Because their equipment's destroyed, the captain decides to leave, but their ship is icebound, so they use TNT and something called nitro starch, I don't know whether that's a real explosive or not, to blow up the ice. The explosions also hit the undersea kingdom. This sends Namor into one of his rages, and he decides to get even with the Russians. And just at that point, a ghostly woman in white appears and sends the crew crazy. Namor takes this opportunity to scuttle the ship, and it quickly quickly sinks. Namor is reinstated as a full citizen by the Emperor, and bumps into an injured Dormer, who explains that she wasn't the woman in white, as she was in hospital the whole time. She'd been injured. Namor ends the story wondering who the woman in white was if it wasn't Dorma. And in the last panel, we have a skull-faced woman in white walking across the frozen wastes. Atlas cancelled Young Men with issue 28, but the Timely Heroes revival continued in two issues of Men's Adventures. This comic had started life as a Men's Adventure title, transformed as so many of Goodman's comics were, from Western into War Comic, then Horror Title before taking on the superheroes. What's noticeable at Men's Adventures is that it features a change of artists, Dick Ayres, Mort Lawrence and Bob Powell. Also, covers are very different. Instead of full-page covers featuring the torch, Men's Adventures presents sequence panels with Torch and Toro in action. Men's Adventures number issue 27, May 1954, seems to have been published between Young Men 27 and 28, and has the torch fighting a villain called The Jet, It's a poorly paced story which concentrates too much, as many of the Torch Adventures do, with standing around talking and very brief action scenes. Drawn by Dick Ayres, with Torch actually pasted over by Burgos, Torch, Betty and Toro visit a former special agent in hospital who asks them to find his son Bobby, who's become involved with shady characters. In the background, someone called Gary Ackers is speaking on TV about the dangers that freaks like the Torch pose. Torch and Toro go to Chief Wilson, who's in pretty bad temper. Criminals have been swarming into the city and have disappeared as if the earth has swallowed them up. They go looking for Bobby, and Toro glimpses a figure in a spacesuit with jets. But Torch dismisses his sidekick, saying he'd read too many science fiction stories. They find Bobby and follow him into the underground subway, where they find a meeting of villains being addressed by the space-suited character Toro had seen. Torch and Toro begin to fight the goons, but the space-suited villain turns on gas which forces the fiery duo to flame off while he escapes. They question Bobby, who reveals that the bad guy's called The Jet, 
and has a plan to announce to New York that he's going to atom bomb the city and then cause havoc in the panic which will allow them to steal millions of dollars. After nearly getting run down, then imprisoned in an airtight well, rescued by Bobby, they get to the Empire State Building and discover that Gary Atkins is really the jet. In a two-panel aerial fight sequence, the jet is set on fire and plummets to his death in a ball of flames. We're told that the criminals are rounded up and Bobby is reunited with his father in the final panel. In the second story, Cap and Bucky, now definitely no longer a professor but back in the US Army as a regular soldier, fights communists in Egypt in The Girl Who Was Afraid. It's a high adventure tale pitting Cap against spies, a femme fatale and an archaeological ruin. It's actually a great little seven page story. Cap and Bucky arrive in Egypt on camel and are befriended by a rich Egyptian called Adu Bey. He goes out of his way to insist how wonderful America is and this makes Cap suspicious. Adu Bey tells them that he hates war and violence, distests the Reds and considers emigrating to the United States. Bucky thinks that Bey is a Red spy. They meet a woman held captive by Bey and used as a dancer and she taps out Morse code with her high heels while dancing for the hero's pleasure. The message calls on the men to help her and later Steve Rogers meets the woman that night and she tells him that she's kidnapped from her family and lives in fear of Bay. Rogers promises to get Captain America to help her out. Cap and Bucky quickly rescue the woman, who doesn't actually give her name, and they ride on horseback across the sand dunes under moonlight. Very romantic um, scene. She leads them to the tomb of one of Bay's ancestors where she says they will be able to hide in safety. Inside the tomb, Cap finds weapons, a plan for a red uprising, just lying around, and a spy radio transmitter. Goons turn up wearing fezes and fight Cap. Then Adu Bey arrives, but instead of directing the villains, he is seized by them. Bey reveals that the woman, called Shika, is the real leader of the red fez-wearing goons. Cap and Bucky make a quick escape, sealing up the back exit from the tomb, and then rescue Bey. Foolishly, Sheikah pulls a gun on Cap and fires. The gunshot causes the tomb to collapse on her and the rest of the fez-wearing red goons. The story ends with Cap, Bucky and Bay reflectively thinking about how peaceful the night is. The Submariner Adventures in um, Men's Adventures Issues 27 is drawn by Bob Powell and really isn't as visually engaging as Bill Everett's work in this run. Powell clearly hasn't read any early Submariner stories as he draws Namor's undersea people as giant green frogs. We're told in a half-paced splash that Namor doesn't trust those who live above the water and the ones he trusts the least and hates the most are the Reds. And in a council room in the Soviet Union, Zuko, self-declared master spy, artist of camouflage and deception, sea captain and above all a communist, has managed to assemble a motley crew of foreign traitors aboard a camouflage ship called the Black Shark. The Soviet Council gives Zuko permission to go and kill Namor. A few days later, the Black Shark attacks an American port and disappears. Namor hears about this and tells his cousin that he's uninterested in the fighting of land dwellers. Namora, who seems to spend her time trying to convince Namor to marry her, urges him to investigate in order to gauge the danger it poses to the undersea people. Zuko deliberately antagonises Namor by making his ship disappear to try and get the Submariner close enough to shoot. A second attempt in shooting um, Namor um, involves a submarine and it fails when Namor works out their deception. 
name was pretty cold-hearted here, and he decides that as the communists had tried to make a fool of him, they deserve to die, as they couldn't possibly good men, and he drowns all of them in a sub, quite ruthlessly. Zuko decides to strike at Namor by kidnapping Betty Dean and trying to and tying her to the front of the Black Shark. And this really does anger Namor, and he responds by ordering his men to build a reef around the Black Shark and fetch him a gigantic sperm whale. The reef is designed to starve out the Soviets, and they use the whale as a Trojan horse to get back at the Black Shark. Namor then rescues Betty, and his men smash the ship to pieces, presumably killing all the remaining communists. The torch demonstrates a new skill on the cover of Men's Adventures, issue 28, July 1954 cover date. Capturing terrorists with flaming handcuffs. Another solid Dick Ayres drawn story. It is a neat plot with a typically 50s science fiction message about humanity not really being ready for the stars. Inside we're told that the torch's adventure is a story that could happen tomorrow. And the half-page splash shows the flaming duo chasing a flying saucer while crowds run in fear through the city streets. The story starts with Torch meeting a pipe-smoking man called George, who's, a, who's sky-watching at night and dreaming about taking the spaceship he has designed to the stars. At that moment, Torch and George see a flying saucer. Toro tells the men that the TV news reports flying saucers all over. And George marvels at the greatness of the alien's intellect in being able to travel through space. And Torch comments that the aliens must be friendly, or they'd already destroyed the planet. But a talking head on the TV announces that a plague is running like wildfire, and that the flying saucers are to, bl- are to blame. Pete Force, who works for George, bursts in and announces he's going into the city to be with his family. At that point, Jets like vengeful wasps swarm upwards, searching for the flying saucers, and the, and the fiery pals follow and manage to land on a saucer. They meet the crew, who are insect-like but friendly. The leader of the crew, Kazar, explains that the plague was brought to Earth by cosmic dust, and that they've arrived bearing a serum. He talks about the code of the outer planets, to bring peace and help to all intelligent beings. But Torch warns Kazar about the the violence and the threat that humanity poses and says that aliens will be attacked if they land. Torch and Toro fly to the governor's mansion where the mob are becoming restless. The governor urges a crowd to go home but Pete, holding his six-year-old daughter in his arms among others who are infected with the plague. And when they see Torch and Toro, the crowd attack believing them to be in league with the aliens. They try to fly away but the crowd shoot them down with hose pipes. They lock the duo in jet baths, where they won't be able to flame on. Torch hears a saucer landing, and uses his finger to burn through the lock on the door. And when they get to the saucer, it's surrounded by a mob, and Pete Force is beating Xar to death with a club. Just before he dies, the alien gives Pete the serum. Xar understands that humanity are like children in the dark. Pete is shocked by what he's done but has enough sense not to use it straight away on his child until scientists can make more for all the infected. So I guess he's learned something from the peaceful aliens. George arrives, bitterly disillusioned. He screws up his plans for a spaceship and now believes that humanity should rot on Earth because of his own viciousness. However, Torch counters this by saying that 
George's first spaceship should travel to the stars and ask forgiveness for humanity's blindness. Kill Captain America, the second story in the issue, opens with a great half-page splash where Cap and Bucky are surrounded by sinister eyes and hands wielding guns. But sadly, the premise of a worldwide hunt for Cap isn't realised and the story ends up as a slightly awkward story about Cap and Bucky inspiring an exhausted soldier. In the three panels underneath, we see villains across the world giving the orders to do nothing but kill Captain America. Meanwhile, in Korea, Bucky and Steve overhear a soldier called Tim Potter who says that his nerves are shot and he no longer wants to fight war and he would not take on the Reds if he could. Steve is concerned that Tim might have changed into a communist and at that point, guerrillas attack and Tim gets captured. Cap and Bucky suit up and fight until Bucky gets captured and held at knife point. Cap surrenders. The leader of the guerrillas, Cag, tells Cap that he'll be put in front of cameras and executed for the world to see. Bucky asks Tim why he didn't help fight and the disillusioned soldier tells him he couldn't stand fighting, he's had enough of war. In a thought bubble, Cap thinks that his own death would be worthwhile if he could inspire Tim to become a fighter again. At the Red Encampment, Tim wants to speak with the local commissar and appears to show himself as a communist collaborator, which really shocks Steve. Just as the guerrillas are about to execute Gap, Cap by machine gun, Tim suggests that he might not be the real Captain America. And a fight is arranged between Cap and the ten biggest guerrillas. Cap punches them out two at a time. And while all the Reds are distracted, Tim grabs a machine gun and starts shooting the place up. Cap takes great delight in blowing up the encampment and then killing Cag, who he throws into a fire. As they walk away, Tim explains that he'd been drugged and was only pretending to be a collaborator because it was the only way that he could help Cap. Captain America ends the story by emphasising the importance of being anti-communist. Let's just say we all did our part in fighting those Reds, he says, as every American must do. The Submariner story, Killer Whales, is beautifully drawn by Bill Everett. The art in this story is among my favourites of Everett's work. And the half-page splash is a thrilling scene where a ship is sinking. The sea is violent and absolutely full of killer whales. Namor is diving into the mouth of a killer whale, while Namor in the background looks unshocked. The first three pages are stunningly action-packed and visually a boiling maelstrom of the churning sea, as the caption tells us. A fleet of whaling ships are attacked by a thousand killer whales, who then go on, on a rampage by destroying a lighthouse, then cargo ships. Anti-submarine nets can't stop them, neither can concrete breakwaters, which only flood count coastal towns. And the whales even attack a naval base. The Navy believe that a diabolical mind is in control of the whales and sends out destroyers to fight the sea beasts. And at the same time, Namor springs into action, because Namora, his cousin, reminds him that humans think that it's going to be Namor who's going to be behind the attack. Namor and his cousin join the fight against the whales, and there's a great sequence where Namor is swallowed by a whale and then cuts his way out. The Navy see Namor and, his and Namora and believe that they're directing the whales, so they start shooting. 
While swimming away from the destroyers, Namor sees the leading whale, and because it worked so well last time, swims into its mouth. Inside, Namor and Namora discover it's really a submarine piloted by dapper-looking communists. Namor fights and then beats the crew. He decides to beach the sub-whales so the rest will follow. The captain, who's grown fond of his whales, begs Namor not to kill them. But Namor, in his typically grumpy fashion, says they're not pet guppies and deserve to die. He beaches the whales and tries to hand the communists over to the navy. They prefer to listen to the communist captain, who accuses Namor of being the puppet master. And the story ends with Namor calling humans ungrateful swine, expressing his bitterness and threatening that he will take revenge. It's a great cliffhanger. But it seems that sales weren't strong enough for Goodman to want to keep his superhero titles going. And after eight months, all had been cancelled. The artist John Romita believed that Captain America, the commie smasher, of this revival was affected by the backlash to the Korean War and Cap was seen as being a dirty name among those who opposed American intervention in Korea. And certainly reading these comics today, the outright anti-communism is awkward and very heavy-handed and certainly overused in almost every story. It's more likely that Captain's stories were dull and repetitive and simply didn't offer engaging enough adventures Issue 78 of Cap's own title, September 1954, collected in Volume 2 of the Atlas Era Heroes Masterworks, is perhaps the best, including the story His Touch is Death, where Cap goes up against a super-powered foe called Electro, and The Green Dragon, where Cap encounters a giant mechanical dragon in China. But after three issues, in August 1954, Captain America was cancelled. Likewise, the remaining Torch stories are mostly similar, with Torch and Toro battling gangsters, getting trapped and having to escape, or dealing with the occasional alien who turns out to be friendly. One story which does stand out is Torch battling a giant Godzilla-like monster created from an atomic explosion. But in August 1954, the Human Torch's title was cancelled after just three issues. Submariner lasted the longest, but was cancelled. In his introduction to Marvel Masterworks Atlas Heroes Volume 3, Roy Thomas explains how he was told by Bill Everett that the Submariner lasted just that much longer because Goodman was in negotiations with a TV producer called Frank Saperstein and a production company called Godson Todman. And this was over a Submariner TV show. The early stages of production for the show were underway and they'd allegedly lined up an actor called Richard Egan, who had a suitably well-booked physique, and had recently starred in a 1955 RKO film called Underwater, with Jane Russell, which involved a great deal of swimming. The Submarine comics are, certainly in terms of Bill Everett's art, the strongest of the revival. Perhaps we'll save those for another episode. For whatever reason, poor sales, failed TV aspirations... Martin Goodman sensing there were other genres for Atlas Comics to follow. The Tiny Heroes revival was nothing more than a prelude for the Marvel Age of Comics, which would arrive in seven years. Thanks for listening to Unstable Molecules. Unstable Molecules is written, edited and narrated by Gary Hollingsby, me. If you like the podcast, please tell others about it. 
You can follow us on Twitter at MarvelUMPodcast. You can rate and review us in iTunes or subscribe to us in any podcaster of your choice. And you can check out the supporting material at our website, www.marvelunstablemolecules.com. Next time, we'll look at another element that contributed to the creation of the Marvel Universe. Big monsters. Oh, and a distribution crisis which caused something called the Great Atlas Implosion. <laughs>